Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11, it says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord. Guys can have a seat. Whoops. When I was a teenager, my cousins and I, a couple cousins about my age, my cousins and I realized that if we showed up at Grandpa's house in the morning, he would always make us pancakes. I mean, we had to get there early enough that he was still in the house and not out in the backyard working. But if we showed up there early enough, which for us was usually when we had stayed up all night goofing around, right? He said, oh man, it's 5.30 already. The sun's coming up. Let's go over to Grandma and Grandpa's house. Grandpa will make us pancakes. It didn't matter what he had going on. And, and here's the kicker. He made, he made the best pancakes. I mean, I try. I try to achieve to his pancake status. I just don't, I just don't know. I got years before I can get there, I think. It's been more than 10 years since he passed away. And often I wish I could eat pancakes with him again. Often I wish I could sit there in his kitchen at the, at the, the counter as he cooked pancakes 
So he'd bring them over from his griddle over to the counter and we'd scarf them down. But not because of the pancakes. Often I think about how I'd like to just see him one more time. Talk to him one more time. Have me wrap him in his old man headlock one more time, you know. He had that old man strength. You know what I'm talking about? You think he can't do anything and all of a sudden he's got you on the ground and you're like, what in the world? I wish I could see him do one of his belly laughs, you know, one more time where his whole belly jiggled as he laughed at something silly that one of us were doing. We have the tendency to overlook the really important things, take them for granted, and instead fixate on the temporal, on the things that are passing. We have a tendency to do that, right? All of us. Like a kid going to Christmas at their grandparents, all they can think about is the presents. And one day all they'll think about is how they wish they could be with their grandparents one more time. We have a tendency to begin caring more about what we are getting than about the one who's doing the giving to us. We do this also with the community of the church. But more critically, we do this with Jesus. Our text this morning is divided by three conversations that Jesus has. One he has with lepers, one he has with Pharisees, and one he has with his disciples. And they may seem at first unrelated as we read that passage, but I think the Pharisees' question in verse 20 is connected both to the scene beforehand and the scene after. You see, the question highlights the point of the text. Typically, what I found is when there's, there's a series of things and, and there's something in the middle that I don't quite understand, what I realize is if I could just understand that, it'll actually tell me what the whole passage is about. And I think this is one of those passages. Here's what I think the point of the entire thing is. And what I want you to really, if you get one thing, I want you to get this this morning. Uh, turn to the king and you get his kingdom. Look for a kingdom and you'll find destruction. Turn to the king and you'll get his kingdom. Look for a kingdom and you'll find destruction. So I want to first look at each of these scenes and explain them a little bit. And then I want to give you a few applications of what we should do in light of this passage and what we should not do in light of this passage. So the first scene, Jesus is with the lepers. It says there that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, right? He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's passing between Samaria and Galilee. And this doesn't just explain why one of these lepers is Samaritan. It actually is pointing us back to, remember, Jesus' purpose. He said, when he, when he turned his face, it said, to Jerusalem. We know his purpose was to go there to win salvation for his people. That was his, the purpose of his first coming to the earth. And that ties this kingdom conversation together. So what we see here is uh, a word to those who are outside of the kingdom, like this Samaritan. And the word is this, turn to him. Turn to him. There are 10 lepers who call out for mercy because of their leprosy. And Jesus tells them, what does he say? He says, go show yourself to the priests. Now, now this isn't just 
him being dismissive. This isn't him like, I don't want to deal with you. Go over there instead. That's not what he's doing. Rather, Leviticus 13 and 14 gives us a little bit of context for what he's saying. You see, the priest's job was to examine a person who had had leprosy and see whether they were clean now or unclean so that they could re-enter social life. They could re-enter the normal flow of what was happening. And so for these lepers, they needed the the priest's approval so that they could kind of re-enter the normal social uh, uh, lifestyle. It was a huge deal. So Jesus tells them, you know what, you know, go, go show yourself to the priest and have the priest give you the thumbs up. Now, now that actually makes sense in context, except of one thing. Do you, you notice what doesn't make sense in there, in the, in the chronology? He tells them to show themselves to the priests before he heals them. They still have leprosy when they turn from him and go to the priests. Each one of them exhibits some degree of belief in Jesus because they obey him when actually, logically, visibly, it doesn't make sense. Externally, what they're seeing is, I still have leprosy. Why would I go to the priest? Heal me, Jesus. That's what I'm calling out to mercy for. But they believe, and they turn, and they go. And as they're going, they are healed. But one leper is critically different than the others. When he's cleansed, what does he do? He turns back and praises and falls at Jesus' feet. One leper isn't looking just for a bit of the kingdom. He's not looking for some benefit to himself. He's not looking for just being able to re-enter social life. One leper, by faith, recognizes the true priest. The true priest is not the one who says, oh, you're clean, you don't have leprosy anymore. The true priest is the one who says, be clean, be healed. He turns. He goes back to Jesus. And he isn't just grateful to be healed. As I'm sure all 10 of them were grateful to be healed. No, he's grateful to the healer. To the healer. And so the result of that faith is what? We see it in verse 19. What does verse 19 say? Rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. He isn't just cleansed, but his faith has made him well. And if you have, perhaps in your Bible, you have a marginal note there that says, uh, your faith has saved you. See, the meaning of the Greek words there could be translated, he has saved you, which is, which is actually probably an accurate, more accurate way of saying it. The idea here is salvation. The idea is wholeness. You haven't just been healed on the outside. You are now whole inside and out. It's not just external. Whereas all 10 have had their outer skin restored, one, one's healing is more than skin deep, Right? One has been made whole. All ten experience a benefit of the kingdom, but one gains the kingdom itself. Why? Because he turned to Jesus in faith. He turned to the king. Second scene, Jesus is with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees ask a question. This whole thing, perhaps it spurs a question from the Pharisees. When will the kingdom come? And Jesus doesn't, he doesn't really give an answer to when, does he? I mean, he sort of does, but not as they are looking for it. First, he begins by describing how 
it will come. You see, the kingdom isn't coming in observable ways. That's not to say that the kingdom is not observable. It's not to say that the kingdom is totally unobservable or that you can't observe the effects or the benefits of the kingdom. Certainly the leper could see that he no longer had leprosy, right? But he couldn't see how he was made whole, right? There's a way in which this is coming that is not observable. Everyone could see that the lepers were cleansed. Not everyone could understand visibly that the one leper had salvation. They can't understand when because they don't understand how. The Pharisees are curious about when, but they can't understand when because they don't understand how. It won't be like an army marching in with swords drawn. It will be God's people empowered by the Spirit with the sword of the Word of God piercing people's thoughts and intentions, and marching through the world, bringing people into submission to the king. You see, these words to the Pharisees are words to those who might say they're in the kingdom, who might assume they're in the kingdom, who might assume that they're part of the people of God, and yet are missing it. And his words to them are, turn your focus. You're looking at the wrong thing. Jesus does not. Jesus does eventually answer when in a way. What does he say? He says, the kingdom is in the midst of you. The kingdom is in the midst of you. Not not meaning the kingdom is somehow in your heart in some sort of individualistic or subjective way. That actually wouldn't make sense because remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees. They, They don't get it. They don't have faith in Jesus. So the kingdom can't be in their hearts. No, rather what he's saying is the kingdom is in the midst of all of you because I, the king, am in the midst of you and I am bringing about the kingdom, right? And so they miss that the kingdom is in one way already there. The win is now, at least in part. They miss it because they miss that the kingdom is the reign and rule of Jesus Christ what he will accomplish ultimately at the cross was seen in healing the leper. So why was it so hard to turn the Pharisees' focus? Well, there was at that time a prophetic expectation that the kingdom would bring both salvation for God and judgment to their enemies. We've seen this as we've been going through Luke and we keep going back to Old Testament passages in wherever those, you know, Ezekiel or, or Jeremiah or wherever where, where, um, Luke is quoting the Old Testament, we see that there was a prophetic expectation that both the Messiah would bring in both salvation for God's people as well as judgment on all those who are his enemies, all those who are not God's people. And so what they don't understand is they don't understand that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is right then going to Jerusalem to do the first part of it. And he's saving the second part for when he returns the second time. That he's bringing the kingdom in in part, saving people, making them his people, bringing them into salvation, bringing them into his family, into his kingdom, and then later he will return for the other part. The Pharisees and others were fixated on the Messiah getting rid of their enemies and bringing them earthly benefit, and so they couldn't see how the Messiah was actually wanting to save more people. Their problem was 
They wanted the Messiah to come and kill all the Gentiles, and the Messiah came saying, I want to save the Gentiles. And we see that in the text, in the fact that the leper that came back was not a Jew, but was a Samaritan. And so, the point here is this, you can't be in the kingdom unless you first recognize and swear allegiance to the king. They wanted the kingdom, but they were unwilling to bow their knee to the king, and the king said, you can't be in them. That's a prerequisite to being part of the kingdom. So I said, the point of this passage is this, turn to the king and get his kingdom, look for a kingdom, and find destruction. This interaction is the connecting point between these two phrases, right? Rather than turning to the king, they were looking for a kingdom, and and so we get to this last part of the passage, Jesus with the disciples. He turns to his disciples, and it's almost like he's, he's saying, look, these Pharisees, they're not getting it, but I really want you disciples to get it. And so I'm going to give you a little bit more explanation that they're not going to get anyways. They're, they're, they're looking somewhere else. But, but I want to make sure that you, you get this. And he says, the days are coming when you will desire. What, what days is that? He's, he talks about two different days. The days are coming when you will desire and the days of the Son of Man. Well, the first, the days that are coming when they will desire to see this, he's talking to his disciples in that generation. You see that in verse 25. The days are coming... The days that are coming are the days in which they will experience themselves. Days in which they will see Jesus crucified. Days in which they will weep as he's buried in the tomb. Those are the days that are coming when Jesus is rejected and suffers and when they wait for Jesus to return. It's the present days. The days in which Jesus is patient with a world who's lost, seeking to save them and to bring them into salvation. But then there are these other days. It says the days of the Son of Man refers to the time when Jesus will judge all people. This is his second coming. This is the time when Jesus will return, when he ushers in the fullness of the kingdom after judging all people. He's telling this first century generation that they will definitely not see that aspect of the kingdom in their lives. And he's saying, if anyone does say that you can see it, if they say, look here or look there, don't follow them because they are deceiving you. You will know it when it happens. It will be clear like lightning in the sky to everyone when that day happens, when I return. However, that doesn't mean it doesn't impact their lives. That doesn't mean that the coming judgment doesn't impact their lives, nor should it not impact our lives. His primary concern for his disciples is that they don't turn back. They don't align themselves again with the world's kingdom instead of his kingdom after coming to be part of his kingdom. He uses the days of Noah and the days of Lot as examples. And you see that? He takes the two largest judgment passages, widespread judgment passages in the Old Testament, he uses them as examples for what he will do. Times when everyone went about life until suddenly the judgment was on them. See, when Jesus returns, right when he returns, at that moment, he will divide the sheep from the goats, one person from another. It doesn't matter if they're in the same bed. It doesn't matter if they're doing the same work. Boom, at that moment, there's no turning back. The decision is made, and that's what it'll be. And we don't know when that's going to be. 
His words to his disciples then are this, don't turn back. Don't turn back. Don't ever turn back because if you turn back, remember Lot's wife. She turned back for a moment. For a moment, she looked back at what she had and wanted that more. And what happened? It was the wrong moment to turn back, was it not? So we put all this together in this one uh, or two phrases, I suppose. Turn to the king and get his kingdom or look for a kingdom and find destruction. So what should we do or what should we not do in order that we don't miss the king for the kingdom? I don't know about you. I want the kingdom. I want the king. I don't want to look just look for a kingdom and end up empty-handed. So what do we do? I think there's three ways that we see in the text that we can actively look to the king. First, call out to the king. Second, submit to the king. And third, give praise to the king. So call out to the king. His, he, he promises to give mercy. It is his delight to do so. It is why he came. He said to seek and save the lost. I can imagine that when those 10 lepers called out to him and said, Lord, have mercy on us, it was his delight to say, go show yourselves to the priests. It's almost like, hey guys, check this out. See what I'm about to do. This is going to be awesome. He also promises that he will judge his enemies, that those who do injustice, that those who do unrighteousness, that if they don't turn from that, he will judge them. He will not let injustice stand. But he'd rather make his enemies into allies. He will judge his enemies, but he'd rather make his enemies into allies. And so, his pa- so we see his patience, 2,000 years of patience, seeking to bring the world into salvation. We must first realize that we are unclean. We are unworthy of the kingdom. This was the first and fatal mistake of the Pharisees, right? If they were asked in a general way, they might have said something like, oh, sure, oh, sure, we're certainly not worthy of the Messiah ourselves. And oh, sure, I've sinned. Praise God, though, that we're in. But they denied and justified their specific sins when Jesus called them out on it. Contrasted, the leper knew he was unclean. He knew exactly why he was unclean. He didn't try to make any justification. He simply called out for mercy. Friends, it's very easy to listen to sermons. It's very easy to go to church. It's very easy to read your Bible and say, oh, of course I'm not worthy of Jesus. Of course I've sinned in a general way. But what do you do when someone specifically looks at you and says, friend, that's the sin right there. That is sin. That in your heart, that's sin. That that you did, that's sin. That makes you unworthy, and you need God's mercy for that. It's a different story, isn't it? We often react in a different way. We're often, very rarely do we say, no, I sinned here. I did that. That is in my heart specifically, and I need Christ for it. I need Christ to forgive that. Friends, you can't have the king unless you're willing to do that. You can't have the king in a general way. He wants all. 
And that leads us to the second thing we need to do, submit to the king. You see, I said that the lepers saw that Jesus wasn't only the true priest, but the true, he, he's the true priest king. He's the better high priest than the man that was in the temple at that time. Hebrews 8.1 says it like this. It, talking of Jesus, it says, we have a high priest. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Our high priest in Christ is not just a high priest. He is also a king on the throne. He is the priest king. Why does that matter? Notice that whereas before the leper called out to Jesus from a distance, after he was healed, what did he do? He came and fell at Jesus' feet. You can almost see it, this leper weeping in joy because he's cleansed, tears rolling off his face, dripping on Jesus' dirty feet, giving him praise for what Christ had done in his life. Listen to what Hebrews 10, 21 and 22 says. It says this, since we have this great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you understand that what Christ has done, when you call out to him for mercy and he forgives you of your sins, what he has done is he has enabled you to draw near to God, a holy, perfect God. Because he has so cleansed you. He has made you whole all the way through. We don't have to stand at a long distance. We don't have to come to the temple. We don't have to travel all the way to a temple in Jerusalem and stand and wait in line and offer sacrifices and and be examined by a high priest. No, our, our Savior sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And from there, he goes, yeah, that one's mine. I cleansed him. Yeah. I've taken care of. We ought to submit to this king. Why would we not? If he's truly done that, if this is really what we believe, it would be foolish to not submit to him in everything. If he's cleansed us in every way. This is the application that Luke wants his readers to understand from this story. Fall at Jesus' feet. Submit to him because he really is king. He has power over sin just as much as he had power over leprosy. And he has authority over you, just as much as he had authority over the lepers. Jesus is not a king at a distance. He hasn't sit somewhere on a throne far away from you. He simultaneously sits on the throne of heaven, and yet he draws near to you at the same time. Is that not amazing? Finally, We don't just submit to him like, oh, I guess I have to because he did die on the cross and he is over everything. No, it's not just like some sort of like humdrum kind of, we give praise to the king. We're grateful, we're thankful. That's the heart that we have. It says that he came praising God and giving thanks to Jesus because he understood it. This should truly be our attitude and our habit, right? Think of this. Ten lepers all had the same circumstances. How many came back giving thanks? How many had a heart of gratitude? Isn't it true of us? Two people can have similar circumstances, and for some reason, one can't imagine being thankful in their circumstances, and another can't stop being thankful in the same circumstances. You've seen this. Oh, parents, I know you've seen this in your kids. 
We just got to stop and think a little bit more before we see it in ourselves, right? How can a person, even in worse circumstances, so often be more grateful than the person who has better circumstances? Because it turns out that it doesn't depend on our circumstances at all. Your gratitude doesn't depend on your external circumstances. The kingdom doesn't come in observable ways like that. The leper praised God because he was healed, but at the same time, turning to God in praise actually resulted in blessing to him. This is how the mystery, this is the mystery of God's economy. This is, this is the mystery of how God does things. If I go looking to get blessing from Jesus, I'll miss it. But if I go to Jesus blessing him for what he's done, somehow I end up getting blessed. If I come here on Sunday looking to praise God for what he's done, not looking to get something for myself, somehow I walk away filled up. I don't understand how it works, but I know it works, and I know how he does it. This brings us to the other side of the coin. Not only should we uh, do these things, uh, there are also things that we ought to avoid What should we be on our guard against that seeks to turn us away from the king and not to the king? Well, three three things that I think Jesus talks about in this final paragraph as he's talking to his disciples. First, don't be misled by pseudo-spiritual things. Second, don't be distracted by ordinary things. And third, don't be lured by worldly things. In verses 22 to 25, don't be let, misled by pseudo-spiritual things. This might sound a little strange at first, but, but I want to explain this because I think it's really important. And I think it's actually probably where most of us fall into, uh, most of us people who go to church on a regular basis fall into a trap here and don't even realize it. Jesus tells them that they will desire to see this, the days of the Son of Man, that they'll be tempted when people say, look here, he's come, look here, look there, that they'll be tempted to go after them, but he warns them, don't do it. The days of the Son of Man are not bad in themselves. He's not warning them against it because they're bad, a bad thing. When Jesus returns, that's a good thing, right? But they're good when and how the Father wills for them to occur. They're good when we have faith that God will bring it when He says He will bring it, and we don't try to seek it out for ourselves. And so there is a way in which we which our desire for what the kingdom produces can cause us to actually rebel against the authority of the king. We want the kingdom, but we want it in our way. We want it on our timeline. We want it in the ways that we think it ought to come rather than submitting to the king and how he says and when he says to do it. And, and by wanting, allowing our desire for a good thing to become the authority over us, we actually become rebels to the king. You see, this happens when people, even well-intentioned people, put the mission of God as they see it over the truth of God. The truth of God will always eventually lead to the mission of God, right? But if we put the mission of God first, it's a matter of time before the truth becomes not truth. And then the mission becomes something other than the mission. It's a matter of time before we fudge on the truth because we think it promotes the mission, but pretty soon the mission is something different than it originally was. 
In our time and place, this isn't usually around judgment as it was in what Jesus was saying to his disciples. It's actually usually, usually around the salvation side of the mission. We begin to think we have the best way to bring people to salvation rather than just obeying God's ways of doing that. Practically, we see this when Christians think the best way to spread the gospel is to talk like some sins aren't actually sins. We think it's the best way to spread the gospel is just, you know, just kind of talk like that's not actually a sin. Then people will be so overwhelmed with the love of God that, you know, for not telling them that their sins are sins, rather than they'll be so overwhelmed with the love of God because they really did sin that bad and He really has forgiven them. It sounds good, but it's not good. There's a lot of examples that I could give here. Time doesn't allow me. But I want to give one example because it relates both with our catechism question about Jesus, the Redeemer must be human, and it also relates to where we are in the calendar year. Next month, as you all know, is June, and June has been proclaimed Pride Month. And so this example, I think, relates something that you should be paying attention to. For some, they think it is wise to promote what's come to be called pronoun hospitality. That if someone wants to be called he or she, even though they may not actually be by God's design he or she, that you ought to do that because it's loving and kind to them. And that's hospitality. But this actually promotes breaking Jesus' commandment not to bear false witness, does it not? It's telling a lie. It's telling a lie to yourself, to that person, to everyone around them. It's a lie. It's just sin. Not only is it sin for you, but it's also promoting covetousness in their heart. God has made them a woman, but they covet being a man. And you're promoting that. God has made them a man, but they covet womanhood. Well, he hasn't given them. And you're promoting that as well. And what happens then when that person actually says, tell me about this gospel, tell me about this Jesus, and you go to tell them the truth, and they realize the whole time that you've been lying to them. Where is your credibility then? That you were so... I don't want to say that. You were willing, you were willing to lie to keep them around you, to keep them your friend, instead of caring that they would submit to their Savior and King. And what about the, the other person? Let's say you, the third person in the room, the coworker who's watching all of this, who knows you're a Christian, who, who, whose conscience is not so seared that they don't realize that that person who says they're a man is actually a woman, whose conscience is not so seared that they know what the truth really is there. What happens to them when they might be interested in the gospel, 
but they know that the Christians just lie in order to keep people friendly with them, that they're not bold enough and brave enough to, to kindly but clearly state what the truth is when it's going to cost them something. Why would I listen to someone like that tell me about this Jesus that's changed their life and transformed them? Or consider that this hospitality, and listen, Satan loves to take things God loves and warp them. That's what he does. God loves real hospitality. But Satan loves to take things that God loves and present them as if they're good, but actually has warped them into something bad and denies Christ's authority. It denies, this kind of hospitality denies Christ's creational authority over us as well. It denies that he has actually made us, that he really made men, men, and women, women. But one might say, well, physical sex, Cody, is one thing, and who someone truly is, their gender, well, that's another thing entirely. Well, I understand that in, the, in like the last 60 years, that's been something that people have started to say. I just want you to know that for 2,000 years, no one ever has believed that. It's made up. It's made up, but it's promoted so ubiquitously in our society that you think that this is the way it is, but it never, it isn't. But let's just say someone says that. Well, that, as I said, that is a view that's based on atheistic humanist principles. Literally, people who did not believe that God existed, who believes that people are basically gods, that was their, their belief, they are the ones that invented it less than 100 years ago and then began to promote it in all these ways in our society. You just need to know that. It's not a biblical view. That's not the biblical view of what a human being is. Christianity does not claim that the true self is some spiritual, inward, psychological, emotional version of yourself that's separate from the physical skin and bones version of yourself. The Bible doesn't promote that to such a degree that it actually says that the fullest version of who you are when Christ returns and you're raised from the dead and you spend eternity with him, that the fullest version of who you are is physical, in your physical body, glorified. You're not a spirit floating somewhere. You don't escape your physical body prison in order to reached to some other level. No, eternity is in your physical body if you... Additionally, as I said with the catechism question, it undercuts Christ's nature. And this, this really gets down to the nitty-gritty of it. Christ was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. And as the catechism, catechism question said, when God put on human flesh, it wasn't that he was really God and he just unfortunately had to wear a flesh suit for a while. Rather, he had to also be 100% man that he could perfectly obey what we ought to have obeyed, but we did not obey as a man. And did you notice when he resurrected from the grave, how did he resurrect? Physically. And when he returns, how will he return? Physically, in his physical body. There's no separating your physical self from your, quote, true self. And if we do that with ourselves, then we can do that with Jesus. And if we do that with Jesus, the gospel disappears. There is no salvation. 
None. And so you might say, well, pronoun hospitality, it's not that big of a deal, Cody. It's just a thing. It's just a kind of a surface thing. It's a kind of a tertiary doctrine, you know, and, and, and it doesn't really affect the gospel. So why don't we just do that just so that people will listen to the gospel? No, it does affect the gospel. It is the gospel. We've got to get this. When we choose to pursue this in the way that we want, rather than submitting to the king's truth, we end up undercutting the gospel when we think we're promoting it. We end up destroying. We want our kingdom and we end up destroyed. And we lead other people, not to love, but to damnation. So the first thing is don't be misled by pseudo-spiritual things. The second is don't be distracted by ordinary things. What's interesting in these stories where he talks about Noah and he talks about Sodom, you'd expect him to bring up examples of these terrible sins that they did because we know in biblical history, we turn back to the the Old Testament, we know that there was these terrible sins that were going on in those days, but he doesn't actually go to any of the sins. He just talks about ordinary things, things that everyone does, eating and drinking and being married and doing just stuff that people do. But the point is, is that They were so distracted by the ordinary things, they did it as if there was no God in heaven. Listen, if Satan can't move us to open rebellion, then he wants to pacify us from what really matters. He wants to distract you. I don't know about you, parents, my kids have this issue where um, if they're watching like a, a, a particular show or they're playing a game, suddenly their ears can't hear my voice. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, they can hear that thing perfectly well, but they can't hear my voice, right? I mean, they can, but they just choose not to listen. Because when I then threaten them that they're going to be grounded from the TV, suddenly they can hear. It's amazing. It's hallelujah, it's a miracle. The Lord has saved. He has healed you. Satan wants, if he can't, get you to open rebellion. He, he, just, he wants to distract you. Look over here. What might this look like? Well, it could look like, you know, a lot of different things. When your extracurricular activities start to replace your ordinary gathering with the church each Sunday to worship God, that's ordinary things distracting you. When being more concerned about getting a raise, when you're more concerned about getting a raise than raising your kids to know and worship the Lord, that's, that's a good and ordinary thing, but it's just distracted you. When being more concerned about if my church is giving people, say, food in our community rather than sharing the bread of life with the neighbors, well, that's, that's ordinary things, distracting. They're not bad things, right? Extracurricular activities are not bad. It's not a bad thing, necessarily, until it begins to distract you. Third thing, don't be lured back to worldly things. We see this in verses 31 to 37. The final warning is for those who seem to have lived looking to Christ but are at risk in the last moment of showing their true colors. Jesus says, look, if you're, if you're on the rooftop, don't even go inside your house to get your stuff. Just go. If you're out in the field, don't go back. Just go. And then he says, remember Lot's wife. That's really the, the dramatic, climactic, illustrative point. Remember Lot's wife. She was as good as saved, but she looked back. It was not the physical action of looking back, ultimately, that did her in, 
but what that observable action displayed about her heart. She did not trust God for the life that God had ahead of her. Rather, she wished for her life back in Sodom instead. She'd rather have the things of that life, even if it meant bringing back all the sinfulness and all the injustice that God was getting rid of. She wanted to preserve that life, and so she lost her life. If she would have given up that life, she would have kept her life and had so much more. Church, Christ has delivered you from the life you had before. Never look back. Don't look back. When Jesus returns, it will be quick. And even if he doesn't return in our lifetime, I tell you, sometimes, most of the time, our time comes quick. It seems like it's slow, and then all of a sudden, it's here. And it won't matter where you are or what you're doing. When the end comes, that's it. All that matters is this. Are you looking to the king? Are you looking to the king? Is your faith in him? Or are you looking to something else? Turn to the king, get his kingdom, look for a kingdom, and find destruction. You see, my mistake was not eating my grandpa's pancakes. Those pancakes were good. They were real good. My mistake is giving too high a priority to that blessing and missing the more valuable blessing of my grandpa himself. And Christ is better than anything you get from Christ. He is the most lovely of all. If I had prioritized my grandpa, I could have had both. Listen, to the degree we are concerned with the benefits of the kingdom over the king himself, we miss out right now on all the benefits of being a kingdom citizen. Worse yet, how many persist in this state? How many persist in this state who will say on that day, on the day of the Son of Man, but Jesus, I want heaven. I always looked forward to heaven. And he will say, you know what? That is true, but that was never the question. The question has always been, if you turned to the king. Let's pray. Lord.